Welcome in again to the Emerging Cricket Podcast, live across all your favourite listening spots. Daniel Bezik alongside Nick Skinner this week. Tim on important VCA duty in the wake of a successful campaign at the East Asia Pacific Qualifier. Wishing all of them all the best and another congratulations. We did talk about that qualify in depth so glad to be talking more holistically in the cricket world with you nick first of all how's denmark uh, how's things in uh, scandinavia for you right now yes lovely uh, it's uh, it, it's been such an interesting experience hearing danish spoken all the time you know because i learned i guess you would say i learned danish from you know watching cartoons and, and reading books and stuff and so i i can understand the words that people are saying but when when it comes to just uh you know, just the kind of assumed knowledge that people have around a, a cultural uh, identity. I, I really have none of that. So it's it's yeah, it's it's just nice being around uh, around the language and and sort of slowly picking up um, more of it here and there. Uh, so that that's been fun. And of course, Copenhagen's just you know one of the great cities in the world in terms of urban design and being able to get around very easily on the bike and everything's very accessible. So yeah, lovely lovely time in Copenhagen. Great to hear. Uh, it is a lovely part of the world from the photos I have seen. I have not been lucky enough to venture in that direction as yet, but glad to hear that everything's going well and the <laughs> the polyglot that is Nick Skinner, struggling to keep up with how you've managed to to do all of that in your time. It's remarkable and it makes you an even bigger asset at Emerging Cricket being able to converse with people in, in so many languages. Uh Things here are warm. Uh, we're about to cop El Nino here in Australia and it's already in the mid-30s uh, during the day and we've only just entered spring. So it could be just a blazing summer. Can't say I'm missing that, to be honest. Yeah, I can't say I'm looking forward to it either. Uh, the pools at, at friends' houses might get a run over the course of the uh, over the summer, but... Uh, happy to report that visa and flights are sorted for India for the Cricket World Cup, which I'm looking forward Ooh. to uh, for my other job. Uh, but thankfully, I think mine and the Dutch paths cross uh, during that tournament, I think at least once, maybe a couple of times. So we'll be able to report on Dutch cricket from uh, on location in India. So looking forward to that immensely. And I know it's not really a talking point today, Nick, but just thinking about sort of the Dutch chances, obviously with the tournament so close now, and I'm starting to to get really excited about their prospects. I know that, okay, semifinals are probably an unrealistic expectation, but I think they match up very well against a number of the, the teams, especially on the bottom half of that slate of teams that are playing at the tournament. They're not a bad team against spin. I think Scott Edwards will have a good tournament. I'm starting to get really excited about their prospects of winning multiple matches here. It might just be me on the hype train alone at this stage, but I don't know, a question without notice for you, Nick, just looking at that team. I I think they've got the capabilities of surprising the likes of Bangladesh and maybe Afghanistan for at least one win, and they they push Sri Lanka at the qualifier. There's no reason why they can't give a couple of other teams at the tournament a, a decent shake. Yeah, I mean, one or two things goes the other way at that qualifier. Uh, <laughs> you know, Wesley Baresi doesn't run himself out in, frankly, brain-dead fashion. And, uh, you know, it looks like they, they probably could have made made that chase. So, uh, yeah, I mean, 
there's no reason why they can't grab a couple of wins, but yeah, you know, it's it's always it's always the hope that gets you, isn't it? And they looked like they might pull off a win here and there in the Super League, but they just couldn't quite get over the line. And you know, you'd you'd hope that that experience puts them in good stead and and gives them you know the ability to to actually get there when they're in this situation again. But <laughs> I don't I don't know. I guess I've been burnt a number of times by this Dutch team, but um, yeah, I mean. As uh, Rod wrote in his piece, a uh, little plug there for the Emerging Cricket website, jump on and, and have a read. But uh, his analysis, I think, is spot on that this is just about the best team that the Dutch could have put on the park. Uh, unfortunate injuries at, at a you know crucial time to, obviously, Fred Klaassen. That's going to make a big difference to their pace stocks. Uh, Tim van der Huchten could have been very useful at the back end especially if they play on you know some some tired decks with with his cutters uh but uh, unfortunately he's not available either so yeah the the pace stocks are the real concern but otherwise i think they they line up pretty well their batting looks solid they've got a, a couple of good problems you could say you know where where do you fit all of these quality bats and their spin stocks look okay i, I mean yeah, Bert- Bertus has poured cold water on my enthusiasm for Shuriz Ahmed, but uh, I-, I still think it'd be I'd be pretty excited to see him uh, g- go up against uh, the the higher ranked full members. Uh, he's he's a wicket taking bowler, um, but uh, yeah, maybe maybe they work him out. But uh, yeah, I mean I- I'm looking forward to it. And from what I've been told uh, by Bertus, he's put in his application to cover the Dutch as a journalist, so you might cross paths with him as well, which which will be fun in India. Beautiful. Uh, Kingfisher with Berta sounds like our, a good idea for an evening there uh, during the campaign. Uh, shout out Bertus, who is also crunching numbers uh, on the rankings front in terms of, yeah, Challenge League qualifier playoffs and everything going on there. And yeah, we will get to that a little bit later. Uh, some other news to begin from another global tournament, the Men's T20 World Cup next year in the USA and the Caribbean. The US sites have been announced for the tournament. This came through, you can tell by the time of, of our recording, this came through uh, yesterday evening, Australia time, and it came through Wednesday evening. Uh, three sites, the ones that were more expected, I suppose, the uh, Fort Lauderdale site, Central Broward Park, Grand Prairie in Dallas, uh, which hosted a lot of Major League Cricket and, and looked, uh, by all reports, a, a great design and a great fit for not only domestic T20 cricket, but a future global tournament. Uh, the one surprise that did come out of the press release is the third site will be at Eisenhower Park in Nassau County, New York. There was a lot of talk about the Bronx being the site for this particular event. There was no mention or no thoughts of uh, San Francisco or LA, seemingly, as per the announcement. Morrisville has been given the cold shoulder, unfortunately, not just for Nate Hayes' sake, but I think for, for cricket, I think that would have been a really good location for a T20 World Cup and international cricket in the United States. But the first two grounds mentioned were... As expected, we believe there's going to be eight grounds in the Caribbean region at the tournament as well. We know it's going to be a big tournament of something like 55 matches, four groups of five, and then uh, another super stage before the knockout phases. So there's plenty of cricket there. Interested to get your take, Nick, on Nassau County as the proposed site. We've heard it's going to be a 34,000-seater venue uh, pop-up style ground that doesn't exist yet so uh, they haven't got long to put that together just 
seven or eight months, if that. So it's going to be touch and go. Yeah, I was surprised that they went with this pop-up thing. I, I don't really see the value in that, if I'm being honest, because you know one of one of the good things about hosting events is that the cricket community in in that country gets to keep the facilities. But if you're just doing pop-ups, okay, thirty-four thousand people. Does that mean they're going to give India Pakistan to New York? It's looking like it, yeah. That's probably the only way they get thirty-four thousand. But then, you know, how does the West Indies feel about having you know being deprived of that? Yeah, so yeah, kind of. It's interesting that they're pushing it so hard, but other than India Pakistan and you know maybe a couple of other matchups, I don't see thirty-four thousand people filing into a, a pop-up stadium in Nassau County really, and. If 34,000 people do go there, I mean, yes, it's close to a subway station, but yeah, what are the facilities like and what kind of facilities are you going to be able to get in time for that? Which, yeah, as you say, it's well under a year until the match is going to be played there. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it's it's If you've got eight venues in the Caribbean plus three in the US, I mean, yes, they're playing 55 matches in the tournament, but that's still quite a lot of venues to, you know, to try and get a game at i don't know maybe are they just going to play one game in in this park i mean maybe but again you know what why not either build a good facility or use one of the facilities that you already have uh or don't bother giving india pakistan to the us who let's not forget their admin is a total basket case but that's another topic for another day but um you know think about all the other games yeah let's say let's say the us hosts i don't know a couple of games at each venue so some like six to eight matches. If they have India Pakistan, that'll sell out. Other than that, I, I'm not seeing the demand for a you know a huge turnout to any of the others. So Fort Lauderdale is going to be empty. Grand Prairie might be filling up. Uh, they they actually turned out quite well for the major league. So uh, you know we'll see how that goes. But uh, you know there's at least some evidence. But if if they if they had Morrisville, you know Morrisville fills up. For, for minor league games, Morrisville fills up no matter what. So it just seems bizarre that they wouldn't at least play a couple of games, you know, associate versus associate or lower ranked full member against associate. You know, a couple of those matches played in Morrisville, they'll get a good crowd in. Whereas if you play that at Fort Lauderdale or, you know, a 34,000 seat pop-up stadium in Nassau County in New York... No one's going to turn up. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm really uh, dubious about some of this. And, and it does seem strange that Morrisville's been given the cold shoulder, as you say. But, yeah, I, I'm I'm always a bit suspicious of pop-up stadiums. Uh, we might get into the Asian games if, if we get time, but that's another one where they're just going to bulldoze the stadium, apparently, after the tournament's over. It just seems like such a waste rather than having a legacy for the, for the cricket scene in the country that's hosting it, which is... You know, ostensibly, that's the purpose of hosting a World Cup is to, to have some kind of lasting legacy for the for the game in the country. Yeah, and an example of that would probably most likely happen when the Men's Cricket World Cup goes to Southern Africa and Namibia are hosting matches in that tournament. And you would say that the Wanderers ground would probably get an upgrade and it would last forever. Um, that's the first example that popped into my head when you were bringing up that topic of conversation. And again, you've already got Morrisville there and you would hope and like to think that there might be teams there that base themselves for warm-up matches or even just base themselves there to travel around. But yeah, it remains to be seen what's going to happen. I mean, assuming that 
that ground would just you know be brought down and and left uh, after the tournament itself. It also begs the question, you know, how much money are you outlaying for the sake of however many matches they're going to get there versus okay, a, a Morrisville is an alternative um, as to you know what the financial outlay is and and how much people want to spend on this. The other thing to consider as well is that in five years' time, LA want to host. Well, LA are hosting the Olympics, but we want cricket in that Olympics. And there's no real chat about what is happening on that front on the West Coast. Uh, we know Woodley's just hosted the women's uh, qualifier for the T20 World Cup in the Americas region. And you would think it'd probably be the most likely site right now, five years out, although a lot can change in that time. Uh, and I'm sure this is a question for Nate and Peter De La Pena, but... Yeah, I, I don't know if that was something that they considered. We know San Francisco was another location which has seen a rise not only in cricket but facilities in that region too. So, yeah, look, it's hard to kind of envisage what it's going to look like at Eisenhower Park at this particular stage in, in time. Looking forward to the concept of it and I think, you know, for the neutral, not even looking at it from an associate lens but even just as a as a sort of a casual cricket fan it's one that I kind of look at with a level of intrigue and and interest and almost put it on like a bit of a bucket list but for the sake of USA cricket and for the ICC is it going to be worth the financial outlay we'll wait and see we don't know how much that's all going to cost remaining quite positive on it and yeah we just don't know how many games they're going to actually host the venue and, and how they're going to make it their while so we'll keep up to date with all of that in due course and talk about it in future podcasts moving uh, forward. Let's talk about cricket that actually happened on the field. And while we were able to gush about Vanuatu's qualification, given that our humble friend and colleague and partner, uh, Tim, is the CEO of of Cricket Vanuatu, had that amazing victory in Port Villa. Great to listen to that as a a fan, by the way, just because I I wasn't involved in recording it. So I was was hearing all your thoughts for the first time. So that was was really enjoyable, actually. I don't think we expected to talk about it for 45 minutes, but we kind of left you hanging there a little bit, trying to wrap the rest of the qualifiers in about 10 minutes. And actually, in fairness, with us in three different time zones now, it's been increasingly difficult. And we appreciate everyone out there listening to it, having it drop it at different times each week now. Uh, I'm yes. sure is an ideal for people in a routine, but we're trying to do or make the most of, of the cards we've been dealt. Let's talk about the qualifiers uh, in Asia and Europe. I know you wrapped the results on last week's show, Nick, but just wanted to get a bit of a gauge on, on what you made of each of them. I know that you'll speak to Nate in regards to the America's qualifier, so we won't dip too much into that one in particular, but we'll start with Asia. Got a little bit hairy there for a moment when we thought that Thailand and UAE might actually come up against each other in the semi-final with rain persistent, but I think hand on heart, we're grateful that it panned out the way it did. I think from the perspective that we want the best teams playing at the global qualifier through the regionals, uh, I think it's fair that we get Thailand and UAE at that tournament. UAE went on to win the tournament. Not that it matters entirely, but probably a good show that their cricket at the moment is probably marginally ahead of Thailand's. We are not worried, but we're mindful of Thailand's little golden period maybe coming towards an end. There is some youth coming through, but I think we can safely say that I think from 1 to 11, UAE boasts the stronger team out of the two. But again, 
fair play for both of these teams to do the business in their regional qualifier and doing so with the uh, added opponent being the inclement weather that, that came across that tournament in uh, in several parts of it. Yeah, I mean, you're always going to have uh, rain questions when you play in Malaysia. Uh, I, I think, honestly, the grounds in Malaysia are amazingly good uh, <laughs> with with drainage and, you know, the fact they play so much cricket there and, and you know, most of it actually gets played rather than uh, being washed out is a, a testament to the groundskeepers at, you know, Royal Selangor and Bayemus and, and all the others. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> as you say, I think it's the fair result to, to see Thailand and UAE through. Uh, Nepal showed a bit of fight throughout the tournament, but, yeah, they, they just they couldn't quite get there. Uh, they, they couldn't put it together, and they are really heavily reliant just on a couple of players, you know, your, your Sridharana Magas and co, and, and that they don't really have 11 good players Whereas, yeah, Thailand, it's kind of the opposite. They they have a very set team, but they, they don't have anyone coming in. Uh, or, you know, as you say, there's a couple of uh, young talents coming through, but it, it is still, your, you know, your, your Chantams, Contraronkai scoring the runs and, you know, Butchertams taking the wickets. Uh, you know, w- when you're in that situation, it, it served them well, uh, as you allude to, over the last few years to have a really settled team with, with a lot of quality players. But on the on the flip side is... If it is always the same names scoring the runs and, and taking the wickets, you know you, you do worry about the the replacements and and where are the replacements coming from. So yeah, I think I think the fact that the UAE beat them in that final is uh, significant because the UAE have been on an upswing for the last couple of years. And just uh, this just occurred to me actually, but you know you, you look at the ICC awarding ODI status to a seemingly random group of women's teams. The UAE wasn't in that group. The UAE are definitely better than several other teams that got ODI status. Arguably, they're on a par with Thailand these days. So, yeah, I mean, that's just another another little side point. But, yeah, I mean, overall, yeah, the two teams that we expected got through, but couple of uh, a couple of interesting little questions there. And, yeah, just a bit sad to see China slipping away as we've kind of discussed in, in earlier episodes before COVID started, China's women's team were on the up and they were one of the uh, one of the teams pushing kind of that, that second tier of uh, Asian associates, whereas now they've, they've really slipped behind. Yeah, well put. And it's amazing how quick things can move, particularly in associate women's cricket. Uh, the emergence of UAE has been threatening for a little while and we know that they are a young team, but the way they've come along in a year or two, and that's in absence of Mahika Gore, who's now pledged her allegiance mm. to uh, England as well, which goes to show just there is a level of depth to that UAE team. And shouting out a friend of emerging cricket in, in Paul Radley, who's done a great story on UAE women's cricket, uh, the national over uh, in UAE. So make sure to sort of give that a read too, is a great explainer on, on how it's all come about. And it leads us to the overarching point that Emirati cricket, as a blanket statement across both men's, women's, and under-19s programs, have done an excellent job over the last three to five years. I think the only part of their cricket that they've really managed to get themselves in a tangle with is probably on the senior side, on the men's side, where uh, they had a couple of negative personalities in the coaching ranks and the organization was... A strange, there were a lot of strange decisions that came out of Emirati cricket on the men's side there, particularly uh, in 2022 uh, in the build-up to the, the T20 World Cup on the men's side last year. It seems like that's all ironed out. 
their under 19 men's and women's programs are excellent and the kids are coming through and playing senior level international cricket and playing at a pretty high level when they are given the chance. So it seems as if they've turned over a new leaf there outside of a couple of things that went a little bit haywire, uh, probably completely unrelated, but there was another uh, huge kind of anti-corruption unit push this week in the form of the <laughs> T10 league that goes on uh. there as well. I don't think they're related and we shouldn't speculate on a lot of that stuff. It, it's something that we actually don't know a hell of a lot about, but it's completely unrelated to the elite level programs and the international team. So it, it's almost probably unfair of me to actually bring it up in this discussion point. But no, no, I, I think it, I think it is relevant because I, I think you can trace their uh, revival to the, the fixing scandal in 2019 where they lost a number of senior players and they were sort of almost forced to bring in the younger generation. And then it turned out that... Yeah, good point. You know, bring, bringing in these under-19s kids actually got uh, pretty good results. And, and uh, it, it was it sort of was like they were they were forced to break their um, you know dependence on on guys who've moved to the UAE as adults and and trust the guys who've grown up in the UAE system and and that gave them the confidence to to play more of them and yeah they've they've blossomed since and that's kind of what you want to see from Thailand just just thinking back to the the, the previous discussion about you know where's where's the next level of talent coming from because the UAE do have that pipeline of talent. Uh, you, you look at the under-19s team, you know, every year, every couple of years, there's always uh, one or two guys who, who make it to the senior squad and, and look, you know, not out of place. So, yeah, I think especially on the men's side, but even on the women's side, a lot of uh, a lot of good talent is coming through uh, from locally produced players who've gone through the UAE system, like Mahika Gore, who are clearly good enough at the international level. So, uh, yeah, UAE cricket's definitely on the up. And yeah, we, we don't know so much about what's going on in, in this T10 league, but yeah, there, there are a lot of these uh, sort of cowboy operators in in that sphere. And uh, it just seems like the, the same thing keeps happening. So I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know about the sanctioning or, or what the ICC's doing about it. But yeah, you, you'd think that they are keeping an eye on it at least because, you know, how many how many times does it have to happen yeah and thankfully well hopefully i'm hoping this is close to the end of it but i don't know it just seems like a bit of a common denominator when t10 is involved on the whole it it seems conducive for those of a sinister nature to be involved and, and look to kind of uh spread their dark web of of corruption lies deceit and greed so i always look at these T10 pop-up leagues is I always look at it as a cynic and I think you have to and it even goes as far as elite players spruiking T10 as their Olympic idea and oh, that, that old chestnut yeah <laughs> we're getting a little bit off topic so we'll, we'll jump back onto the, the the cricket chat let's go to Europe and the, and the women's qualifier there because uh, we didn't again didn't get much of a chance to really wrap it in depth although it sort of went the way that we had expected. I think the only massive talking point out of it is that the Dutch actually snuck up on the Scots and beat them in the first meeting between the teams. And yes, it was off the back of a superb individual effort from Stara Callas at the top of the order. But there is a lot of good chat coming out about the Dutch women's programs at the moment and for them to beat Scotland who have historically been well ahead of them, I think is uh, a good talking point. We will see both of them at the global qualifier, of course, with two qualifiers coming out of Europe. 
Uh, the other talking point being uh, Italy beating France twice uh, in the double round robin as well, which put them in a comfy third. But to start with the top two teams, this is intriguing. And these two teams play each other a fair bit. They could probably play each other a little bit more. And I think the emergence of the Dutch as being a little bit stronger than they have been in recent years only bodes well for uh, them and Scotland who, yeah, you would think that they would come against each other multiple times over the course of the year and build each other up into two strong associate women's international teams. And yeah, we could see them both making decent challenges at the global qualifier come next year. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where they go because Scotland uh, are sort of one of the go-to examples of... Uh, associate nations that are doing well slowly ticking off all their boxes for for application for full membership they are maybe lagging a little bit on on the women's side i think as we've sort of alluded to with thailand you know (laughs) you look at who's scoring runs and taking wickets in scotland and most of the time it's someone uh, with the surname bryce Uh, occasionally uh, you know abtar maksud chips in or, or someone like that but they are heavily reliant on the bryce sisters and and that's something that can often happen at sort of lower levels of cricket is you know, you'll have one or two genuinely world-class players like the Bryce sisters and then everyone else in the team is, is kind of, it feels like they're making up the numbers. And I, I don't know if that sort of uh, flows through to the attitude or, or, or whether they, you know, they feel like they, they can sort of let the Bryce sisters uh, take care of everything or, or, or what. But if they are not performing, then... Uh, yes, you've got Abtar Maksud, but then so you've, you've basically you've got three genuinely good players, and then uh, eight others who are accompanying them, and that's something that Scotland really need to work on is you know, finding people who can step up when you know when when the Brass sisters and, and Abtar Maksud have a bad day, or on the other hand, when they come up against tougher opponents, and you need more than two or three players to step up. You, you need, you know, p- performances from, you know, four, five, six players uh, to make a difference against, uh, say, a, a Bangladesh, who they'll be coming up against at the World Cup qualifier and is sort of like the <laughs> the, the final boss for associates at women's level in yeah. terms of qualifying for, uh, for, for events. So, uh, yeah... I, that that's my concern for Scotland. Um, interesting to see Jeremy Bray taking over as coach for the Netherlands and and uh, I guess immediately getting results. Uh, I don't know if this is a, a new coach bounce or just the fact that Jeremy Bray is a, an excellent coach. Uh, we we know Tim hired him to coach uh, in Vanuatu and uh, it didn't work out due to a, a personal situation for for Bray, which was unfortunate because uh, I think he was a great fit for that Vanuatu setup. But um, good get for the Netherlands uh, he, he uh, seems to be turning things around and the Netherlands is a similar boat to Scotland I guess they've got Stericalis that they've got maybe one or two others who can make a difference but uh, they, they do have a lot of strugglers in in that Dutch team and uh, Bray is a guy who thinks a lot about systems and and um, you know trying to look a bit more holistically at the cricket scene so hopefully he's putting in place some measures to, to try and attract uh, more talent to that Dutch team and, and to, to build up the, the playing pool so you can actually find a bit more talent to recruit from because at the moment, you know, Dutch women's cricket is choosing from a very small pool of players. So fundamentally, if you're, if you're trying to improve your team, the, the, the thing to do is to just have more people playing cricket so you can uh, choose from, from more talent. Let's move quickly to Africa. 
Division two of the Africa uh, Women's T20 World Cup qualifier was also completed in the time that uh, all the other women's events were on. The last two teams of the global qualifier to be confirmed are actually going to come from this region. Nick, I've got to say, I hadn't had much of a chance to look at this tournament completely with Vanuatu being on at the same time. But looking at some of the scores, I think it's time for us to pay tribute again to Queen to Abel of, of Kenya for being uh, so effective at what she does. Uh, an outstanding tournament for her and ultimately helping Kenya move on to the uh, the next phase of the tournament and the, the, the path of the, the T20 World Cup. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's always a good tournament when you top the run charts and the wicket tally. Uh, so you can't really argue with that. Uh, 238 runs in five outings for Quintor Abel, including Kenya's first T20i century against Lesotho. So congratulations on that front. Yeah, <laughs> Quintor Abel had a great outing, but I mean, Kenya in general uh, just were completely dominant in, at this level, African sub-regional level, basically. It'll be interesting to see where they match up because they've been absent from a lot of the regional stuff. Uh, you know, the East Africa, I think they pulled out of Kwabuka last time as well. Um, they were supposed to play against Qatar in a tri-series in Malaysia. That didn't happen either. Um, that they, they've been essentially uh, strapped for cash and unable to get to to a lot of the their sort of planned outings. So this was the first time we've seen them on the field in a little while. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll be we'll be good to see how they measure up against a team like a let's say a Namibia or a Uganda or a Zimbabwe who. You know, they've played against in the past and, and have been competitive, but we just haven't seen them uh, in action recently. So, uh, yeah, I think also worth mentioning um, Daisy Androgo, who was second on the run tallies. Uh, so another Kenyan uh, chipping in there as well. And young Lavender Edambo, uh, also second on the, on the wicket tally. Uh, so, you know, when you've got players from one team, in first and second position and runs and <laughs> runs and wickets, it's generally indication of uh, a pretty dominant performance. So yeah, how they how they step up will be interesting. But uh, I think they'll give it a pretty good crack. They you know in, in the past they've been not too far away. Yeah. So Botswana and Kenya progressing to the Division One qualifier in Africa. The other teams at that tournament: Namibia, Nigeria, Rwanda, Tanzania, Uganda, and Zimbabwe. And of course, there's two spots there on the line for the global qualifier for the Women's T20 World Cup. And they'll be the final teams to be decided for that tournament with all the other qualifiers shaking out. Moving on, we'll head to the golf now where the golf T20 competition is being played in Doha. It's been a great event. Nick, you made a point before we jumped on. The crowds have been excellent there. And there's actually quite a bit riding on this for some of the teams with ranking points helping on the road to qualification for pathway events actually on the 50 over side through the challenge league pathway uh it's meant that uh saudi arabia have actually got a lot to do at the upcoming t20 world cup sub-regional qualifiers in the region but to bring it back to this particular tournament six teams as we said held at the uh west end ground the asia town facility in doha you've been able to watch this a little bit more than we have uh, in this part of the world just because of the time zones and the matches have been quite late at night here. But UAE doing the early running uh, four from four as we, I suppose we would expect, but there has been significant challenge over the years by the other teams in this particular region. Qatar above Oman on the table and Oman have been probably not at their best, it must be said, so far in this competition. They already have a spot at that sub-regional 
uh, for the T20 World Cup. Kuwait, uh, Bahrain and Oman all locked together on four points from four matches at the time of recording. But Saudi Arabia, who have gone winless here, they need the ranking points to make sure that they're in the running for that Challenge League playoff that is set to run early next year. So to bring it back to that, first of all, Nick, there's been a lot more riding on this tournament than a lot of people are probably thinking. And it just reiterates the point that even the tournaments that we didn't think would have a whole lot of context in the grand scheme of world cricket seemingly do in the associate world in this particular tournament. Well, yeah, as you say, just to start off, it's it's been actually a really entertaining tournament. We've had uh, um, some upsets. Uh, you mentioned Oman, they lost to Bahrain. Um, and going into the, the sort of final round of matches, we had UAE uh, four from four and then Saudi Arabia none from four. Uh, but between them, we had four teams all on two and two. And, and so we had four teams uh, basically fighting over one slot in the final against the UAE. So, yeah, pretty pretty good tournament all the way through. Uh, UAE, as you would expect, uh, have been the best team here. But um, I, I guess it's kind of a surprise that Saudi Arabia have been so bad because they've definitely beaten most of these teams before in the past, but um, it's just meant that the sub-regionals in Asia coming up uh, about a week after the final uh, are going to be extra exciting because <laughs> Saudi Arabia will then need to win both of their matches before the September 30 cutoff, uh, which are against Maldives and Qatar, and Qatar obviously having just beaten them here. So Maldives, you would expect, is a bit of a gimme for Saudi Arabia, which then means match against Qatar on the 29th of September is basically determines whether they stay in front of Spain or Spain uh, pull ahead on the rankings and thus make it to the playoffs to to break into the Challenge League. Qatar, of course, uh, are safe in the Challenge League, having finished above the relegation zone in their group. And a couple of the other teams at this event, Bahrain and Kuwait, are already ranked ahead of Saudi Arabia. So they'll be making it to the playoff as well. Yeah, so basically Saudi Arabia having a shocker here has meant that the the rankings race has got very exciting and uh, Burtis might indeed be getting that crate of beer from Corey Rutgers, uh, Spain's men's coach, because I think a lot of uh, a lot of assistance from Burtis de Jong has gone into Spain's preparation and, and, and run on the rankings table and that would be very interesting to see how they go at the playoff, but that's maybe getting a little ahead of, uh, a little ahead of things, but... Um, Yes, to, to, to bring it back to the golf, T20, it's one that we, we've seen, I don't know if it's the same organisers, but there's been a similar tournament uh, played on the women's side involving pretty similar teams for the last couple of years. Um, so it's good to see the men getting into the action. And, you know, the fact that it is so tight going into the back end of the tournament just indicates the level of parity in this region. And it, it is another little uh, little part of the world where, there's a whole bunch of teams competing against each other and, and basically lifting each other up because there's a, a high standard of competitive cricket being played and, and everyone's playing regular cricket, kind of like a, a mini Africa region. Just quality cricket on the field means that you, you get better as teams. So uh, in terms of spectators, uh, I think the home crowd in Qatar have been in for a treat. They turned out pretty well at a guess based on the capacity and you know how full it was i'd say a good couple of thousand maybe a bit over three thousand fans have turned out to watch qatar beat uh, saudi arabia in in their last group match and you know the effects mike picking up the the chance and the the 
cheers. Basically, the crowd went wild when uh, when Mohamed Tanvir hit hit a six to finish the game and uh, and get over the line. Although I think ultimately their net run rate won't be good enough to sneak into the final against the UAE. But uh, yeah, a, a good tournament so far and, and a good venue to host at. And uh, it, it seems like a pretty good run for the the first outing of this tournament. Yeah, and you bring up Bertus. We actually consulted Bertus ourselves when we were crunching the numbers in regards to all of this too. So you can do a lot worse around the associate world if you want to ensure that your T20i ranking gets a nice little bump ahead of these 50 over pathway events in the, the next cycle, then I'm sure he, he might as well just start his, his little consulting business uh, out of his out of his bedroom uh, in order to, to, to just make a little bit of extra coin. But it's something that you need to be quite mindful of when you are one of these fringe teams in the t20i rankings and you can definitely tell from the outside who's paying attention to it and who's not by the way not only do they plan in the build-up but also how they actually play on the field too uh, i don't really want to name names but there's been some obvious instances in the last six months or so where the number crunching has not been good enough and it probably cost a team or two a spot in this particular playoff so it's very important to keep in mind and you just have to play within the rules I mean we all know that the the T20 ranking system is not the best way to determine all of these positions but you need to make the most of the card that's been dealt in this case and yeah you need to almost kind of game the system in in your favor to ensure that you get ahead it's as simple as that I mean there's been so many times as well where associate countries and associate teams have been on the wrong side of that misfortune. So I think you just need to make the most of, of the situation you've got. L- looking towards the tournament itself, uh, yeah, UAE have been a class above. And if you look to the run tallies and the wicket-taking columns, then, you know, Mohamed Wazim looks a class above once again. We know how good he is. I think he's actually taken a step above himself in terms of his consistency with the bat we knew we knew he's got a lot of power we knew he has a great eye and we knew he was capable of big scores but the consistent churning out of runs now at the higher level has been probably something that that's he that he's really added to his game and Ali Nazir is a player who's come in on the on the UAE front and again just to sort of reiterate the point that we made uh the the kids coming through Ali Nazir's 19 and to be the leading wicket taker at this particular tournament would be a huge confidence booster for him so yeah looking forward to the end of the tournament there and and the business end just looking at the schedule that final is on Sunday and There's a match on Saturday as well, Kuwait taking on Oman, as well as uh, Friday action, Bahrain uh, taking on the UAE, who are currently unbeaten, as we mentioned. Looking forward to all of that. Uh, Quickly moving on to uh, the Malaysia Tri-Series, and this series is roughly halfway through, so I think we'll probably talk about this one in a little bit more depth uh, on next week's show, but uh, a good showing so far for Papua New Guinea. It's an intriguing series given the fact that Malaysia and Hong Kong are preparing for their own T20 World Cup qualifier. They're already through uh, to that Nepal tournament. There's two spots out of that particular event, which will be hotly contested, but PNG are already through to the T20 World Cup and they're using this as a bit of a springboard into some more preparation. We know that their prep for 2021 was curtailed by a lot of things largely outside of their control. They've done well to be involved in this particular tournament as well and it's going to be something that they're going to have to do now till that T20 World Cup halfway through next year. 
And the early signs are good, to be honest, from watching them. Uh, they've been pretty emphatic in the victories that they have had. Tony Ura is back to his best and almost in a similar vein to Mohamed Wazim. He's a player that we're yearning for some consistency. We know he's capable. We know he's powerful. He uh, destroyed the roof at the Bayumos ground uh, as well, just to being the home record that he is. But <laughs> there's a little bit more depth in this PNG setup than we might have thought maybe a year or two ago. I definitely think they're stronger than the T20 World Cup in 2021. They've been able just to leave out a lot of players out of this particular squad. They only picked 13 players. Nasana Pakana's back. Sese Bao didn't even make the squad, which is, you know, if you said that to someone two years ago, you'd call them crazy. There's a little bit more depth there. Hiri Hiri coming in with some back-end runs. The bowling looks a tad stronger. John Carrico, again, is showing that he's no shrinking violet at this level at such a young age. I, I don't know. It might just be the EAP rose-tinted glasses that I've got on, Nick, but I think they're a stronger side than they were a couple of years ago. And yes, they might be coming towards the end of what we would consider a golden age of Barramundi's cricket, where a lot of these guys will probably move on very soon. But in terms of the men who will be available next year at the T20 World Cup, I think they're actually a stronger side on paper than they were two years ago. Whether or not that means a win, it'll be very difficult the way that the groups are set up at next year's tournament. But I don't know. I'm starting to become very positive about this PNG side just purely by the depth that they have at their disposal. Yeah, I mean, uh, a guy like Tony Ura firing at the top always makes a big difference. Um, I, I actually, <laughs> you, you mentioned that hit onto the roof at, at Bayou Emmas. I actually went and um, measured it on, on Google Maps. It was It's at least 95 metres from the centre wicket to, to the roof there. So pretty handy hit that. But uh, yeah, you know, having a guy like that at the top just gets you off to such a good start. And, you know, Asad Vala, I really like that combination of aggression and stability. I think that's a winning formula uh, for a lot of teams with their openers in T20 cricket. So, uh, you know, assuming that they keep their form up, that should be a pretty handy combination uh, at the World Cup next year. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, you talk about depth and talent coming through. John Carrico is is kind of the obvious one there in terms of new blood into this team because most of the names that we're looking at there have played quite a lot of cricket for PNG and as you say uh, maybe in the back end of their careers whereas Carrico is, is a guy who's just come into the team and has been incredibly impressive early on and just offers a bit of a variety with you know his left um, uh, finger spin is something that PNG I mean yes they have Asad Vala bowling off spin and Charles Meany bowling uh, sort of fast leg spin but you know they, they don't have great spin options really uh, so you know having a quality out and out spinner just adds an extra dimension to, to their bowling attack that they haven't had uh, and you know primarily they have relied on fairly samey medium pace bowlers so Nassana Bakana getting back to his best is also a big plus for them because he he does have a bit of extra zip and gets that awkward sort of left arm angle and bounce which which can be a lot harder to play so yeah their, their bowling attack is shaping up nicely the, the batting I guess the question you know Legacy Arc is back in the team He's a guy who's kind of disappointed a lot in the past. Will he be able to put it together or, or is this another flash in the pan? You know, those kinds of questions remain to be seen. But if, if guys like Hiri Hiri and Riley Hikure are able to come in and sort of make their mark on this team, I think I think that puts them in good stead because, you know, for so long, basically all of their World Cup League 2 campaign, they had a, this kind of rotating cast of, of lower order bats <laughs> um, like Hiri Hiri or, or, or Riley Hikure who 
kind of do a bit of this and a bit of that with the ball and the bat and they're not really a danger with either discipline so if they're actually improving I I think that that's a good sign because uh, for so long they have been just so mediocre and underwhelming outside of four or five players in that 11. So if if the rest of the team are starting to put together some consistent performances, then yeah, they they will be a threat and maybe they'll be getting back to the PNG of 2019 who were runners-up in the global qualifier for the T20 World Cup, let's not forget. And then, you know, of course, COVID and and the tournament was delayed. And when they finally got to it, they were a shell of their former selves. And it's been fairly dismal uh, for that whole period, you know, not not winning very many matches at all in in League Two. So, yeah, you you always want to be hopeful with PNG, but it just feels like every time they they have a bit of a spark then they they sort of come back to ground so hopefully this is this is signs of something to come because you know to to your point if they can show what they can do at the T20 World Cup that's a great advertisement for cricket and the EAP cricket uh, especially in this this exciting region of game where you know there is so much great cricket being played and hopefully PNG can show the best of EAP but I'd wait to see them play some tougher opponents than Malaysia I'll put it that way yeah i think we could be somewhat higher on this performance. They've gone to Malaysia and they've played reasonably well. And Hong Kong are a side two that are threatening, albeit without uh, Anshi Rath. Whether or not we see him at the Nepal qualifier as well, that remains to be seen. But again, we'll wrap that tournament in due course once it does reach its conclusion. I think we've run out of time, Nick. It's been actually quite a jam-packed week in the emerging game and we're looking forward to, I suppose, more action through the Asia T20 World Cup qualifier and the sub-regional that leads into that almost straight away as a bit of a launching pad uh, among other events. So for everything in the emerging game, make sure to log on to emergingcricket.com as well as our usual social and listening spots where you drink in the podcast or keep up to date with everything in the game's new world. Uh, Thanks for joining me, Nick, and I'll talk to you next week. Pleasure as always, Bez. You'll hear from us next week for another EC pod, but on behalf of Nick and myself, Daniel Peswick, it is goodbye.